Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. Daniel Stafford was a wonderful evangelist and a very effective one. This sermon was preached in 1978 at God's Bible School and College Camp Meeting in Cincinnati, Ohio, and he titles it, Encouragement in the Lord. I know you're going to enjoy this wonderful sermon. opportunity of being here for the camp meeting in 1978. I have profited as I have sat at the feet of Brother Taylor and Brother Adcock, and as I've listened to the shouts of the saints, I have watched Brother Flexen, and the thought has come to me, what a heartbreak we're not reproducing this type. We don't see many men like that. God bless him, and somehow stretch out a few more years. We need him. Appreciate how that everything has been arranged. I've marveled how that they've been able to handle such a large group of people in this area. They have just had things well organized, and I've certainly appreciated it, and I'm sure that God is blessing, but I don't believe the best is yet. I believe there's better days ahead. There's other young people that will be coming to this school. If they'll just keep the glory on, keep their right perspectives, there's a lot of them that will be coming, no doubt. And so I trust that everyone will just keep on a keeping on. And if you will, I'm sure that God will bless you. I want to read to you this morning from the first book of Samuel, the 30th chapter, beginning at verse 1 and reading through verse 6. The first book of Samuel, the 30th chapter, beginning at verse 1 and reading through verse 6. And it came to pass when David and his men were come to Ziglag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziglag and smitten Ziglag and burned it with fire and had taken the women captive that were therein. They slew not any, either great or small, but carried them away and went on their way. So David and his men came to the city and behold, it was burned with fire and their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captives. Then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives were taken captive, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the wife of Nabal the Carmelite. And David was greatly distressed. For the people spake of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved. Every man for his sons and for his daughters but David encouraged himself 
in the Lord his God. We come again this morning, dear Lord, asking that you will speak to us from thy word. Let us hear thee speak clearly, and then when thou hast spoken, may we all be constrained to walk in the light of it, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Our text this morning is found in the sixth verse that I read in your hearing. David was greatly distressed for the people spake of stoning him. Because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. I'd like to especially emphasize that last statement. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. Now, while David was absent with the army of Achish, the Amalekites, they invaded the little town of Ziglag. They kidnapped the women and the children. They stole the possessions, and then they burnt the little town to the ground. When David and his men returned from battle, they found only a charred piece of ground. They began to weep. They wept until tears would no longer flow. Then the anger of the men began to mount, and they said, we're not going to follow David any longer. Then they said, we're going to stone him. We're going to make him pay for what has happened. But standing there on a charred piece of ground, surrounded by angry men, amid the threats of violence, David did a very significant thing. He encouraged himself in the Lord his God. Now, if he had waited until he got over the big Israelite camp meeting, where the sweet singers of Israel were singing their melodious tunes, and if he had worked up a little emotional display over there, it would not have been too significant. But when a man can stand on a charred piece of ground, surrounded by angry men amid the threats of violence, and find a source of encouragement, I'm convinced that that source can hold us steady regardless of the pressure that the enemy will bring to bear. There are three things this morning I want you to notice with me about David. The first thing I want you to notice, David could not encourage himself with conditions. Would you let me say that again? David could not encourage himself with conditions. Now, if I can read the Bible correctly, of all the physical conditions described, there was not one thing that had any source of encouragement whatsoever. There's no encouragement in a burnt city. No doubt as David and his men were engaged in the battle, one of the thoughts that gave them strength to fight on was the prospect when the battle is over. When we've made our way home, we'll come to the crest of the hill, and from that lofty height we'll look down into the little town out of which we marched. Wearily now they've laid their way back and they stand at the crest of the hill and they look down, but not at the little town. It's only a charred piece of ground. I can't see too much about a burnt city to make a fellow overly happy. In fact, if he didn't do cartwheel up and down the center aisle, I wouldn't think he was beyond hope of two or three camp meetings and surely you could get him back in good victory for there's just not too much encouragement in a burnt city. Then you know there's not too much encouragement in stolen possession. No doubt as David and his men were engaged in the battle, one of the thoughts that gave them strength to fight on was the prospect when the battle is over, when we've made our way home. There we'll find a well-laden table. 
We'll find a change of raiment. We'll find the different things to make glad the physical man. But wearily now they've made their way home. There is no well-laden table. There's not even a crust of bread. There is no change of raiment. There are no physical things that will make glad the physical man. Everything has been stolen and taken away. Now, really, if a fellow didn't take just a running leap and come running down the back of the top of the pews, I wouldn't think he was beyond hope because he hadn't got blessed over all of his possessions being stolen. And then you know there's not too much encouragement in your wife and children being kidnapped. No doubt as David and his men were engaged in the battle, one of the strong motivations that enabled them to fight on was the prospect when the battle is over. We'll make our way home. There'll be the embrace of our lover. There'll be the voice of our children calling our names. But wearily now they've made their way home. There is no embrace. There are no voices calling their names. Now, I know that there are some men today that would feel like God had done them a large favor if their wife was kidnapped, but I don't happen to be in that number. Twelve years, I was the loner out there on the old smoke-filled buses and trains and planes. As an evangelist, of course, I've been in the field 26 years, but 12 of those years I traveled by myself. And I'd come in at those beautiful hours that an evangelist is allowed to arrive, midnight, 2 a.m., 4 a.m. in the morning, you know. But invariably, whether I was on the bus or the train or the plane, somehow when they opened the door, the first fellow that staggered off with a suitcase under each arm and one in each hand usually was this fellow. And you know what I was looking for? I was looking for that little woman and those five, uh, well, I call them young'uns. Now, don't go to Webster. He doesn't know how to tell those big words. You come to me and I'll give it to you. But anyhow, I, I was looking for that little woman and those five young'uns. And whenever they'd see me, they'd let out that little war hoop. Now, you'd criticize them, but I never found any criticism in my heart when they kind of let their emotions go when they saw Dad stagger off the old bus. So I can't see too much about the wife and children being kidnapped to encourage the heart. But did you know if I'd tell you the truth this morning, I'm going to have to tell you that the nearer that you and I come to the rapture, the less that we're going to be able to find at eye level to encourage our heart. I wish I could be a rosy optimist, as they're saying you should be, and tell you that things are going to be better. But I believe in the honesty of my heart that you and I are probably seeing the brightest day we'll ever see again. If I can understand this book, things are not going to get better. They're going to grow steadily darker. And did you know, I thank the Lord that he created me a pessimist. It pays to be a pessimist. Oh, you didn't know that. Well, I'm glad I've told you. You get up in the morning expecting all four of your tires to be flat and they're all standing up there. You've got four pleasant surprises to start the day with. <laughs> it pays to be a pessimist. Dr. Godby that stood here on this hilltop many a time, Dr. Godby said no optimist can read the Bible correctly. Did you know he wrote that? I was out at our college at Bethany and when I showed that to some of the theologues, they just about dropped their bottom plate. That's exactly what he said, and that goes cross-grained to some of your thinking, you know. 
But if I can read the book correctly, things are not going to get better. They're going to grow darker. But you know, the Lord has given you and I proper instruction for this hour. I believe some of the most pertinent scripture to be found in all of Holy Writ, especially for the child of God, is the 21st chapter of the Gospel of Luke. There, beginning at verse 25, he said there would be sign in the sun and the moon and the stars and uh, the sea and the wave roar, the, uh, the seas and the waves roaring. And he said, Upon earth, distress of nation with perplexity, men's heart failing them for fear, looking on the things that are coming upon the earth. Then I think the most pertinent verse, if I was going to select a verse for any individual that's a Christian today, I'd give you the 28th verse of the 21st chapter of the Gospel of Luke. He said, and when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your head, for your redemption draweth nigh. No, you didn't catch it. I can see the expression on your face. You're just like I was. I read it for 30 years, and I didn't see it. And one day when God turned the lights on, it's been a revelation from that moment till this. Notice what he said. He said, when conditions get so dark at eye level, it seems like sin is so prevalent, and the besmirching effect of sin is seen at every angle. It's in the home, it's in the street, it's on the job, it's in the church. Looks like the devil's having high carnival. When these things begin to come to pass, watch it now. He said, look up, I see that ceiling. But that's where most of us stop. But notice the Lord didn't stop there. He said, and lift up your head. Break contact with this down here. If you keep your eyes glued on this, it'll rob you of all your joy. It'll rob you of all your victory. You'll get so low and you'll get so depressed until the devil will have you as another of his praise. But he said, when these things begin to come to pass, he said, get your head up, lay your treasures up, and get ready to go up for your redemption draweth nigh. So David could not encourage himself with condition. Now the second thing I want you to notice, David could not encourage himself with his companions. Now in my way of thinking, this is one of the saddest things that I can think about. I don't know about you, but let me confess unashamedly this morning. I need the help that I derive from fellowship with men and women whose hearts have been touched by grace divine. Now, the church can make it without me, but I just need the help that I derive from men and women who know the Lord. I don't care whether you call yourself zero or X, Y, Z. If you really know the Lord, let me kind of run along with you, for there's just something about fellowship with men and women whose hearts have been touched by grace divine that gives to me unadded strength. But you know, there's not too much encouragement in mutiny. When you know that you're ordained to be the leader and the crowd you're trying to lead just puts their heel in the ground and said, no, sir, we are not about to go along. There's just not too much to make a fellow just overly happy about mutiny. I've seen some preachers bless their heart. Their face looked like the front end of a 69 Ford. It was just turned down, you know. Looked like they'd never smile again. And I wasn't inclined to be critical in the slightest degree, for I knew some of the problems that they were confronted with. It's hard to try to lead people when they refuse to be led. Perchance you heard about those three scouts. If you did, I'll just review it to your thinking. But if you didn't, then I'll tell you something brand new. 
three little scouts, and the scoutmaster said, Boys, said, have you done a good deed today? Well, they said, uh, no, sir, we haven't. Well, he said, you know, if you're a good scout, you ought to do a good deed. You better get out and do a good deed. So the three little fellers went their way. They were gone about two hours. When they came back, it looked like they'd had an encounter with a Mack truck, and they had come out second best. One of their hair was disheveled. One of them had a red smudge on his face. One of them had a torn place at his shoulder. The scoutmaster got excited. Boys, boys, what have you been a-doing? Well, they said, we've been a-helping an old lady across the street. Oh, that's nice. That's a good deed for three little scouts to do. Well, now, wait a minute, boys. What happened to you? Well, they said the old lady didn't want to cross the street. And you know it's a little hard to help an old lady across the street when she's determined she's not going to cross the street. And it's hard to try to lead a group when they refuse to be led. There is no encouragement in mutiny. And then you know there's not too much encouragement in the prospect of being stoned. Now, we're all sociable beings, and I guess we all like to go to a party if it's the right kind of a party, but I don't think any of us would become too elated over the prospect of going to a head-skinning party, especially if we were going to have to furnish the head. And that was what these men had on their agenda. They said, we're going to take David's noggin, and we're going to make a target out of it and bounce every rock we possibly can off of his noggin. Now, not too much about the prospect of being stoned to make a feller shout and happy. And then, you know, it's not too encouraging when part of your crowd is so weak until they can't help you chase the enemy. Now, as I read this story, I'm really, uh, uh, well, I'm intrigued by it. You know, when they started after the Amalekites, they hadn't gone very far till they came to the Little Creek Bezoar. Well, of course, any crowd had been a-fussing like that crowd had been a-fussing. They'd be a pretty dry outfit, so they all had to have a drink. But when they got out to get them a drink, you know that one-third of his congregation folded up like an accordion. They said, we're going to organize the first church of the creek dwellers, put our feet down in the creek so we won't dry up completely, prop us on the leaning side, and the rest of you go ahead and overcome the enemy and win the victory, but do hurry back and bring us a little lunch. Now, I wish I could stand here and tell you good people this morning that those creek dwellers died on the banks of the Bezoar. But I'm going to have to inform you that like crabgrass, they seem to flourish in every climate, uh, and every place that I go today, I find a group within the group. I find a little nucleus that has to assume more than their rightful share of uh, the burdens and the labors. They have to do more than their part of paying and more than their part of praying and more than their part of the labors. Because the larger group that lives on the outer perimeter, they don't seem to have any concern. They're just the creek dwellers. Now then, after this little faithful nucleus wins a victory, you've never seen people that can so vigorously wave the flag and scream, Whee! Man, haven't we really killed a big one like the creek dwellers can. I'll never forget, <laughs> I went to my last pastor. Four groups were kind enough. They put up with me uh, as a pastor. And uh, at the breakfast table, uh, Brother Adcock and uh, Brother Taylor 
we were uh, kind of mentioning about uh, the length of a pastor and there, there's where you'll never get anybody to agree. I think I'm a perfect example of what no one should pattern after. For I did exactly what any intelligent person would never think of doing. I pastored four churches. God did help me to see them at the highest point they'd ever been in their life, at their highest attendance they've ever run. But when they was at that highest point, like a jug handle, I was gone. Crowd thought we were just really going great, and I'd get up, read my resignation, and in two weeks I'd be gone. Never did change churches that I didn't take a smaller situation. Why did you do it, preacher? Well, don't ever try to figure out why I do things because you couldn't come to a logical answer. But I remember that I left a church. We were averaging better than 300 in Sunday school, and I went to a church running 65. But the amazing thing about this little church, I've never seen a crowd in my life that had as much sickness and as less dying as that crowd had. <laughs> Fifteen years prior to my going there, they hadn't had a funeral. No one had gone to heaven or any other place that all stayed right there. But sick, oh, how sick they could get you. Well, in the spring... They would give us a quota for our Sunday school drive, and I'd get excited, you know, and I'd get up there and just go into orbit. Now, come on, folks, let's go. And we would to the hospital. I had four of them in town, and by Wednesday night, they'd be in all four of them, you know, lying up there like the sacred cows of India. You couldn't touch them because they had so many kinfolks, you see, in the church. I tried to vote them out, but they had so many sorry kinfolks. I'm going to run that through again. I said, I tried to vote them out, but they had so many sorry kin. You know the death of most homeless churches. We've got too many kin, folks. Man, you cross up with the Jones, and you're in bad trouble for everybody's kin to the Joneses. I was over in Brazil, Indiana, in a revival meeting, and I got beside myself one night, and I was talking about trying to stay up with the Joneses, and I said, I wish the Joneses would go home. And three carloads of them had come from another church. <laughs> Just about my luck, you know. Well, anyhow. Well, nothing you could do but reach down, take your bootstraps, and just begin to pick yourself up, you know. And God helped us to reach our quota. Man, by the time we reached our quota, they was all so disgustingly healthy, you couldn't seemingly make them sick. But man, they was waving the banner and saying, Whee! Have we killed a big one? Well, now, I'm smiling now, but I wasn't smiling then. For I tell you, there's really not too much encouragement when part of your crowd's so weak. You can't depend on them. They can't help you chase the enemy. But say, if I'd tell you the truth this morning, if I'll stay in harmony with this precious book, I'm going to have to tell you that the nearer that you and I come to the rapture, the less that we're going to be able to find and even are supposed to be spiritual companions to encourage our heart. There are going to be those that we'll invest our confidence in and they'll betray that confidence. There'll be those that we'll feel sure they're going to stand like the rock Gibraltar and before our amazed gaze they'll crumble and they'll fall. But wait a minute. God never intended for you and I to keep our eyes this low. You and I will elevate our vision and get our eyes on him that one day walked among men. He'll never be late. He'll never be little. He'll always be there. He'll always pick up the big end. He'll never disillusion you. He'll always be able to give you the right instruction. There'll be no discouragement if you'll get your eyes on the one that we're supposed to pattern after. Now the last thing I want you to notice 
David could encourage himself in his God. He was conscious of the fact that this evil had not happened either through his neglect or because of his folly. Therefore, he expected help from the Lord. Well, now, Brother Stafford, what were the points of encouragement that David had? Well, if a preacher wanted to preach an everlasting gospel, he could make a list as long as your arm on the points of encouragement that David had standing there on that charred piece of ground. But I'll not be tedious. Let me confine it to what I think was the three prevalent areas of encouragement. The first thing I think he encouraged his heart with was the Lord's changelessness. Now, David knew how vacillating that people are. Man, they're like yo-yos. One day they're up here, and the next day they're down there. One day they can say, Saul has killed his thousand, but David has killed his ten thousand. But they no, sir, we're not going to follow him. We're going to stone him. That's how people change so swiftly. But David knew that this was not true with his God. He knew that his God was faithful in the fifth trouble and the sixth and unto the very end of the world. He knew his God had said in the time of trouble, call upon me and I will hear thee and I will deliver thee. So David encouraged himself in the fact that his God was steadfast and changed not. Not only that, David encouraged himself in the Lord's ability. Many times when trouble comes and the sky is dark and low, some benevolent person will come and say, Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, I wish I could help you. Their very statement is an admittance of the fact that they don't have the ability to do what they're desirous of doing. But David knew that this was not true with his God. He knew that not only was his God concerned about him, but his God was able to do what needed to be done. You see, this wasn't the first time David had been in trouble. David had been in trouble before. He remembered when that old lion came roaring off the hillside with the intention of eating his sheep. But he remembered how that God enabled him to pull the jaw of that lion apart and drop the old lion dead and allow his sheep to go along nibbling their grass. He remembered when that old bear came growling off the hillside with the same intention. But how did God enable him to pull the jaw of that bear apart and drop the old bear dead? No doubt his heart beat fast as he walked back through memory's lane. Remembered how he stood out there on that battlefield. There stood that great hulk of a man. Commentators tell us that Goliath stood between 10 feet and 7 inches in height. He had between 800 and 1,000 pounds of armor on his personage. They said that the brass helmet that he wore weighed nearly 300 pounds. Many of them have suggested that David was around 15 years of age, little ruddy-faced boy standing out there. And I used to think how unfair the battle, and I still think it was a rigged affair. But I tell you, I've had a decided change of my sympathy. I used to sympathize with a little old boy standing out there with a great hunk of a man. But you know who I sympathize with today? Poor little old Goliath. Little old pusillanimous thing. He never had a chance in the world. For you see, he thought all that David had that day was just that sling, but David had more than that. He had his spiritual goggles and they'd been wiped real clean with spiritual Kleenexes and he could see things that poor little old Goliath couldn't see. Why, David looked out and saw that the whole battlefield was filled with the horses and the chariots of the Lord. He said, no, Goliath, you belong. 
You think you're out here just going to fight a little old boy and your ego's been deflated and you want to tear me to pieces and put my flesh in the tree for the fowls of the air? But I said, I want you to know you're not fighting David. You're going up against odds you can't compete with. For he said the battle is the Lord. All David is going to do is loan God an arm and God's going to put an aimer on that arm and sure enough, that old rock sped right to the noggin of the giant and he went falling over like a pine tree and David pulled the giant's own sword and chopped his old head off. And David seemingly concluded like this, God help me with that lion and God help me with that bear and God help me with that giant and God can help me with these disgruntled men. But not only that, I'm sure that David encouraged himself in the Lord's power of direction. Now if I can read this story correctly, the Amalekites had a three-day head start on David and his men. And there did not happen to be a neon arrow flashing saying Amalekites went this way. In fact, there was no indication which way that the Amalekites had gone. But David knew that the God that sits in yonder's heaven, whose eyes run to and fro throughout the whole earth, that beholds both the good and the evil, he knew that God had watched the Amalekites and knew exactly where they were. He called for the up out of the priest and inquired of the Lord, and the Lord said, Sure, you'll go after them, and you'll overtake them, and you'll defeat them. Go this way. You know, the Lord gives us a light one step at the time. They hadn't gone very far until somebody said, wait a minute, there's somebody dead here in the ditch. When they turned him over and examined a little more closely, they said, no, he's not quite dead. They gave him some uh, figs and they gave him a little water and his spirit revived and they wanted to know what band he was. He said, well, three days ago, he said, I was the Amalekites and said, we burnt the city of Ziglag. Isn't that interesting? Now, if anybody had a license to leave a fellow lying in the ditch, it would have been David and his men. They could have rationalized and said, we'd like to help him, but our wives are in the hands of lustful men. They've had him for three days, no telling what they'll do to him. We've got to hurry on, but if they'd have hurried on, they'd have gone out into confusion. For here was God's signboard, a lion in the ditch. When they helped them, they received help. And of course, you know the story, and I draw on my imagination they said, uh, can you uh, lead us to him? Oh, if you'll give me protection, I can. And somehow they allayed all of his fears, and he did lead them. Uh, and I just thought in my thinking, uh, what in the world did David offer that feller uh, as protection? Do you think he pointed to this disgruntled group and said, here's a hearty crew. They've been talking about bouncing rocks off of my head. I'll give this crowd to you. I don't think David would have wished that crowd off on anybody. Well, do you think he was audacious enough and he flexed his muscle? So look at that, bub. That's the arm that held the sling out of which the old stone sped that pecked the old giant on the noggin. I can't conceive David doing that. Well, what do you think that David offered this fellow? Well, let me ask you a question. When he was standing there on that charred piece of ground surrounded by angry men amid the threats of violence, where did he receive strength? He encouraged himself. In the Lord is God. And I think he offered to this fellow the arm of the Almighty. And that seemed to suffice. And you know the story how they came upon them. And God must have touched the tone of their ear. And they thought they heard a larger crowd. They were right in the act of a banquet. But the men turned to their heel. David and his men killed some of them. Then they came back and there was their wives and their children. They had a contest for a little while, you know. And there was the well-laden table where they could just take big bites. But they said, stop. 
Don't eat a bite. There's those creek dwellers. You can't count on them to pray. You can't count on them to pay. You can't expect them to be right in there when you need them so desperately bad. But we've got to take them a little lunch. Oh, the day of reward is going to be a day of amazement. Some of you are going to get a reward you never thought you were going to get because you had to do a little more than your share so that you could keep the creek dwellers from dying at the banks of the creek, you know. You just keep on being faithful, and you're going to be so glad one of these days for all that you've done. But now, David knew that God knew the way to the Amalekites. And say, I'd like to say this this morning, and you're not going to remember it very much, I say, but I hope you'll remember this. You and I are living in probably the most confused hour that history has ever recorded. We have become a victim of our own accomplishment. Our mass media of communication is one of the most deadly things in all the world. It's marvelous in some ways, but it's deadly. Into our homes come so many different voices. Most of us are subjected to so many erroneous ideas until the average mind stays in absolute confusion today. It's such an amazing thing when I meet any person, preacher or layman, that really know what they believe and why they believe it. Even in the preachers now, they've got so broad-minded and they've listened to the opposing theories of theology until they want to be so lenient and they want to be so nice until they have lost their real foothold and they don't know where they stand. And you take the average person today, here's what he's subjected to. If he turns on these supposed to be religious radio stations, nearly every one of them are, are owned by the sin and religion and the jabberism crowd. Seldom do you ever hear a real message on second blessing wholeness. But you can listen to that music and you can listen to that music and inject that with these different erroneous ideas until it's ingraining itself deeper and deeper into the thinking. I find so many of the laymen as I go across the country that you're closer to Calvinism than you are to Arminianism. You don't even know what Arminianism actually means. Many of you, if I would ask you that. But you can just say what these little sin and religion preachers have been saying over and over and over. It's ingrained itself deep into your thinking. Here's one man, he stands before the microphone. He said, if you hope to make it, you've got to go this way. Another fellow comes up, and he seems to be the essence of sincerity. He said, don't you be deceived. If you hope to make it, you've got to go this way. Here comes the third fellow. Don't let either one of them deceive you. If you hope to make it, you've got to go this way. The average person stands in utter confusion today and the cry across the country, who in the world can we believe? Say, I'll tell you who you can believe. Believe the one that's still on the same throne that he's always been on. The same God that watched the Amalekites and directed David and his men, he knows the way that will lead into the city. And if you and I plant our hands firmly in his hand, if we'll surrender our will to his will, if we'll be led by his prompting, one of these days we're going to top the last rise and the light of yonder city is going to break before our raptured view. He actually knows the way that will lead into the city. My father and mother moved to South Georgia around the turn of the century. My father was president of the orphanage. My mother was the financial secretary for 10 years. They housed from 85 to 115 orphans at the home, placed hundreds of them across the Southland. 
When my mother moved to this South Georgia city, there was two people that were sanctified. My mother and one other lady. There was not a church in the whole area that was even sympathetic toward the theory of holiness, much less the practicalities of it. You think you're having a hard time? Wasn't a church that even was sympathetic to holiness. There wasn't a minister in the area that was sympathetic to holiness. Now, this other lady that was sanctified, she had a husband just about as mean as a man can be. His occupation, he was a fiddler. He played for all of the square dances. And he'd drink white light and whiskey and make eyes at the women and brag that no preacher would ever turn grace at his table. You ladies think you're having a hard time? Would you like to get up and tell me how rough it is? Now, you'd think this lady would never be blessed and she'd never smile. But my mother would meet her uptown and she'd be a grinning like a mule eating sawbriars. Have you ever watched a Georgia mule eat sawbriars? You can go to every university in the land and try to study on the art of grinning and you'll never properly learn how to do the job. But you watch an old Georgia mule in the act of eating sawbriars and he'll show you how to do the job. It starts around here and wraps all the way around and then has a little left over for good measure. But my mother would meet this woman and she'd be radiant and she'd say, Oh, Sister Stafford, I believe God's going to save John. Many times she'd say to my mother, she'd say, Now, after you put your children to bed, uh, will you come over and have prayer with me? That was back before I had discovered America. My mother would say, Well, now, honey, uh, where will John be tonight? Oh, he'll be out here at a farmhouse playing uh, for a square dance or drinking his whiskey, making eyes at the women, you know. And my mother said she'd go over and said when that woman would open the door, said her countenance would just be a glow, and said she'd say, oh, Sister Stafford, I believe victory's near. They'd get on that magical elevator called prayer. They'd be lifted up in the presence of God. Time would lose its significance. And when they'd finally come down to terra firma, they'd have a hugging contest and each tell the other that they felt like victory was near. One day, my mother met the lady uptown and she said, oh, Sister Stafford, I believe victory's come. Would you come over tonight after supper and pray with me? Well, honey, where will your husband be tonight? Out here at the farmhouse playing for a square dance. Mother said she made her way over and said when that woman opened the door, said her countenance was just radiant. She said, oh, Sister Stafford, I believe that victory's come. I believe God's going to hear a prayer. Mother said that woman's faith was so magnetic she was caught in the sway of it and she had the persuasion that God was going to answer prayer. They stepped on that magical elevator. They were lifted up in the presence of God. Time lost its significance and about midnight they came down to terra firma again. Refreshed themselves and each tried to tell the other that they felt like victory was in the offing. They stepped back on that magical elevator and was lifted up in the presence of God and at 2 a.m. in the morning the divine dispatcher of the sky sent two telegrams that arrived simultaneously at the hearts of two women on their knees and the telegrams read identically the same. Just three words. John is saved. That's all it said. Well, they had a hugging contest uh, there and each tried to tell the other what the other was trying to tell, you know, 
And between 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. in the morning, my mother made her way home. Had John come in with a glowing testimony? Oh, no, no. John didn't get in till the next morning at 7.30. Well, let me tell you what happened. And it happened. About 1 o'clock, one of the men saw John making eyes at his woman, and he said, you dirty rascal, if you don't get out of here, I'll put both of your eyes out. Well, they could see there was blood shed in the offing, and they said, John, you better leave. And John had that terrible disease that so many people are inflicted with today, that awful disease of syncopation. You heard about that lady that she tried to uh, rebuke her husband for being a drunkard, and he said, I'm not a drunkard. I'm a sick man. I've got syncopation. Well, like any woman, she believed her husband. I, I said, like any good wife, she would somebody just say something? I know you're out there. I can see you. But like any woman, she was curious. And so she went to the dictionary to look to see what the word syncopation meant. Well, of course, you know one of the terms. It's a musical term. It means an unsteady movement between two bars. And John had a bad case of syncopation, you know. Well... This was 1907, and John had one of those modern inventions that uh, Henry Ford had made, you know, the Model T. He uh, started it in 1903. And so, uh, 1907, this uh, Model T looked like uh, an improvised buggy, you know, the buggy seat up here and the little narrow tires. So, uh, John, uh, he made his way out to this Model T and he got the thing uh, revved up, putt, 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 and he got up there and he pulled the ears down, putt, putt, and he just putt, putted as fast as it would putt, putt right down the lane. Well, of course, he couldn't dig out and he couldn't burn rubber, but when you pull both ears down and putt-putt just as fast as you can putt-putt down a little old uh, narrow lane, when you come to the end of it and it's 90 degrees, something's got to give, you know. Well, you know what happened when he got to the end of the lane and there the front end just buckled. Well, when it did, John just joined the bird gang. And he went out into the air. Well, there just happened to be a shallow, wide ditch there. John fell on his back, and the Model T just turned and came right over on top of him and just imprisoned him. His arms was kind of to his side, and his head was sticking out one side and his heels out the other side, and the rest of him was underneath the overturned Model T. Now, it was an accident. You couldn't explain it any other way. But there just happened to be a rock lying at the right place. When that copper radiator came over, it didn't split it. It just pecked a little bitty hole. And the water began to trickle down. And when it fell off, just accidentally, it just happened to hit John right in the forehead. Just drop, drop, drop. Now, it was an accident. No way you can explain it other than that. But he had, had come just far enough from the farmhouse. The water was not hot enough to scald the hog. It was just warm enough to set the hair or to sober the drunk, you know. Then another accident or just peculiar thing that had happened. He was just far enough from the farmhouse. Even though he was screaming at the top of his voice, they couldn't hear him for the music and the merriment. Well, he screamed until laryngitis set in and when he could no longer speak. By that time, that warm water hit him right in the forehead and his exertion, he had sobered up. And just an accident, but that water got below that little peck place and it quit. Now there he was lying out in the darkness of the night with a Model T on top of him, but it soon became light. For a heavier load than that uh, got on him. 
God the Holy Ghost went out of that model T and reviewed to him how abusive he'd been to his good godly wife and how faithful she had been. Well, his voice was gone, but aren't you glad that God doesn't listen primarily to the voice of the lips? He listened to the cry of the heart, and God heard his cry for mercy, and God granted him mercy, and God lifted the load of sin, but he left the model T right on top of him. About 6.30 the next morning, here came some people along, some farmers. They saw the overturned Model T. They got out to investigate, found a pair of heels on one side. They didn't say anything, but they got around on the other side and found a noggin, and in a kind of a tortured voice, he said the heels belonged to him and everything between the two extremes. So they went and got help and turned the Model T up on its wheels and plugged up the little hole and put some water in it and got it cranked up, and he putt-putt and jumped up on the thing, and he putt-putted home. He jumped down, run up the walkway, opened the door. He met his wife, a grinning like a mule and briars. They had a hugging contest and he tried to tell her what she had known since 2 a.m. No, that's not a story derived from fantasy. My mother was one of those two ladies on her knees when the Holy Ghost said, John is saved. Do you know what those women did in South Georgia? They didn't encourage themselves with condition. They couldn't even encourage themselves with their companion they spoke a language that no one else seemed to understand. But they did encourage themselves in the Lord their God, and God has always proved to be vouchsafe. I wish I could tell you it's going to get better in 79. I think it's going to grow darker. But I'm glad there's one on the throne that if you and I will keep our hand in his hand, be led by his directive, he can lead us into the city. Shall we stand? That has been passed on. I don't want to lose the fire. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA.